Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, a quick warning. There's mature language and topics covered in this episode, so if you're listening with little ones, it might be time to turn off. So the first day I left from the west coast and headed inland i like stopped at a gas station for a lunch break this is mary ann thomas after 77 days of biking up the west coast she began heading east along washington's highway 20. and heard an indian accent go by and i looked up and it was just a white guy walking by so initially like okay i definitely didn't hear that she figured she must have imagined it and then turned back to her lunch. And he says to the woman he's with, woo-wee, there's a darkie over there in this, like, carnivalesque way. Like, there's a attraction in town. And then he gets close to a woman who's getting out of her car, and he says it again. And she's like, what the f*** are you talking about? And he's like, that f- over there, and points to me, and is like, that's a darkie. And now I know I didn't imagine the, like, Apu Indian accent he was putting on. That was super scary because I was like, I really do stand out here. Marianne is the daughter of Indian immigrants. She's also queer. And she was in the middle of a bike tour across the country. On a physical level, Marianne had worried about bears and cars with oblivious or intoxicated drivers. She wasn't really worried about people who actively wanted to do her harm. That was... That wasn't something that she set out being scared of. But she did wonder how she would be perceived as she pedaled her way from the West through middle America. As a brown woman, there's an increased vulnerability and an increase in how public of a figure I am. I stand out 
especially I had shaved my head in San Diego. So I'm like wearing bright color, short bike shorts, riding my bright bike (laughs) with the shaved head on country roads, you know, stopping off in gas stations, in oil and coal country. I guess I expected a lot of active hostility and xenophobia given the discourses around like immigrants taking jobs, things like that, that present middle America as very hostile to immigrants. I expected like ignorance and a lack of education to not just exist, but also to like shine through in every interaction. The incident at the gas station in Washington, it did a lot to reinforce the concerns Marianne had. And it also did a lot to reinforce the stereotypes she had for middle America and the people who live there. But this is a story about challenging preconceived notions, not just reinforcing them. And really, it's a story about making yourself vulnerable. There's a risk involved in going to places where you stand out, where you're not like everyone else. By definition, you won't feel comfortable, especially if you're trying things that you're not already good at. But making ourselves vulnerable, stepping out of our bubbles and out of our comfort zones is how we grow. It's how we develop our skills. It's also how we gain perspective that allows us to challenge our own assumptions. Today, producer Jen Altschul brings you Pedal Strokes and Perspective, a story about a bike tour, about putting yourself in an unfamiliar situation, and by doing that, finding a new point of view and a new place to call home. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In April of 2014, Mary Ann left her job as a nurse in NYC and took the first pedal strokes of her tour across America. Six months, 6,600 miles, San Diego to Vancouver, Washington, Vancouver to Montreal, where she had a friend she wanted to visit. A friend joined Mary Ann for the first few weeks of the journey. Together, they pedaled from San Diego to the Dr. Seuss-like landscape of Joshua Tree. From there, they meandered back west toward the Pacific and fought their way north against a stout headwind along the winding, rugged coastline of Northern California. In Oregon, Marianne waved her friend goodbye and continued solo, through Portland, up into Washington, and onto the Olympic Peninsula, where it rained every day, even in late June. From the Olympics, she crossed the border into Vancouver, BC, then spent Fourth of July with friends of friends in Blaine, Washington. She detoured often, more interested in experiences than miles. She didn't map out her route ahead of time. Her only rule was that she would move slow, take a week to explore each city, four days for each national park. By the time she turned east, she had been traveling for over two months, put over 2,200 miles on her bike, and things had gone remarkably smoothly. As she wrote on her blog at the time, on this journey, I have cried only tears of joy and never of regret or sadness. Then, on the second day after she started east, she pulled over at that gas station picnic table in Washington. I like packed up my lunch, got on my bike, 
and rode away, like very fearfully rode away. I now have to ride out of this town and there's only one road going through it. He knows where I'm biking. And then I got a flat. And at that particular moment, she discovered that her bike pump didn't really work. And so I'm on the side of the road with a pump that doesn't work, trying to fix my flat and just fear spiraling. The next gas station was eight miles down the road and she really didn't want to go back to the last one. She needed a ride or someone with a bike pump. And then you're confronted with how wonderful and nice people really are. A cyclist out for his afternoon ride pedaled up and gave Marianne a CO2 cartridge, which inflated her tire well enough for her to make it to the next gas station. It all worked out. Marianne pedaled through the rest of Washington, across a narrow swath of the Idaho Panhandle and into Montana. She made a loop north through Whitefish, up to Glacier National Park, then back down toward Flathead Lake. The scenery and the landscape of northwest Montana stole her heart. The endless sky, the mountain passes, and the miles of winding descent from them that felt more like flying than rolling over pavement. But as she rode past rural homes or through small towns, her fears about that part of the country would rush back to the front of her mind. A lot of riding there is you know, six inches worth of shoulder, people are going real fast, not giving you a lot of room. And then also, as you're passing people's yards, there's like 10 foot by 10 foot signs with the Ten Commandments on them. (laughs) Just as her nerves began to rise, she felt that awful grind and wobble of metal on pavement. She got her second flat of the trip on a two-lane country road just outside of Big Fork, Montana. I probably hadn't changed a flat alone in, like, at least a year. She managed to get a new tube in the tire, but couldn't get the tire back onto the rim. She picked up the phone to call a friend for advice. Then as soon as I got on the phone, within, like, 30 seconds, a, like, young man in a pickup truck stops and asks me if I need help. The man struggled with the tire for a moment, then dug around in his truck and found a bottle of auto lube which he used to slide the tire back onto the rim. Marianne thanked him, and he drove away. And then within another minute, three motorcyclists are coming from the other way. They, again, see upside-down bicycle. And so they stop and ask me if I need help. She thanked them for stopping, let them know she was okay, and they rode away. And then a third person stops, and she says, Hey, I saw that it looks like you're okay, but do you know where you're staying tonight? The woman, Diane told Marianne there was a campground in town, but if she wanted, she could pitch her tent in her and her husband's yard. And ended up having dinner with her family. And what that night was for me was realizing that, like, in these small towns, there are so many different versions of people. It wasn't like she was this version of Christian, conservative, middle America that I had in my head. She was somebody who was, like, well-traveled, was really active and involved in her community. Her and her daughter and husband went kayaking every weekend. It just showed me that it was, there's the ability to have a lot stronger connections in a smaller community, and that small towns can look like anything, right? Sure, there can be, like, a really conservative small town, but there can also be one where, like, a lot of people are genuinely invested in being open to new life experiences and being open to outsiders and that I didn't have to be met with suspicion just because I was a small brown stranger. 
Big Fork, Mary Ann traveled southeast, tracing a diagonal line across western Montana. She stopped in Missoula, in Yellowstone, in Jackson, and then rode up the Continental Divide. On her way down the eastern side of the divide, she rode over 100 miles in a day for her first time. She continued across the endless prairie and high desert of eastern Wyoming and into South Dakota. In South Dakota, she paused for a week to volunteer on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, a place that has been referred to as ground zero for native issues in the U.S. She helped with construction projects, building ramps to help elderly people access their homes, bunk beds, skirts to help insulate trailers. That week on Pine Ridge, multiple Lakota people had said over and over again, like, this is the most racist state in the United States. And so, like, hearing that over and over again and then being like, okay, I guess I'm going to ride through South Dakota (laughs) was, like, pretty jarring. Nonetheless, Marianne continued east. Within a couple of days, she ran into a patch of construction. Usually, she'd just pedal through construction zones. But the flagger at this one asked that she ride in the pilot car. As she pedaled up toward the front of the line of stop traffic, a man got out of his white pickup and offered her a ride. Marianne climbed into the truck, and the man, Dave, started to tell her about his life. He'd grown up in South Dakota. He knew all the guys working on the construction. He and his wife were both hunters. They lived on 15 acres in a house his dad had built on the edge of a national forest. He then talked about how his wife was a nurse, His wife was also named Mary (laughs) and how they had like an outdoor hot tub where they would spend their nights on clear nights looking at the Milky Way and counting satellites. Dave dropped Mary Ann off on the other side of the construction and left her with directions to his house in case she decided she wanted a place to stay that night. So he kind of said like, oh, yeah, and if you're around, we can feed the deer together. And I was like, what are you talking about? That made me super curious and decided at the end of the day I would end up there. Dave and his wife Mary offered Marianne a shower, let her wash her clothes, and fed her dinner. Then, when dusk fell, Dave filled a can with corn, and the three of them went out to feed the deer. He started calling the deer, like just calling babies, babies. And then with the sound of his voice, you would just see deer heads popping out all over, like from behind trees, from behind rocks. I think there were 24 deer that night, fawns bucks, deer that you wouldn't expect to see mingling together, were all together. That was a super special experience for me because I had never seen deer acting that tame. I had never known that people could have that kind of an intimate relationship with wildlife. And they told me over and over again that they would never hunt those deer because those are their babies. They watch them grow up. They see them year after year. With Dave, for me, there was a breaking of stereotypes that this guy in a white pickup truck was over-the-top generous and also just showed that he was caring in so many aspects of his life that don't fit the stereotype of burly, silent, rural (laughs) men that I guess I had in my head. on Saturday. He was shot to death by a police officer while he was unarmed. Before she got on her bike the next morning, Mary Ann's assumptions about small-town South Dakota were challenged again. She was sitting in the kitchen with Mary while the news played on the television in the background. The Michael Brown shooting, the incident where a police officer shot an unarmed black man in Ferguson, Missouri, had just happened. 
and footage of the clash between the protesters and the Ferguson PD flashed across the screen. I didn't want to say anything about it. I didn't know what her politics would be and didn't want to start like a political conversation. But she actually said something like, it's terrible what they're doing. It's just too much. And I I was kind of like taken aback in my head. I'm thinking like, is she talking about the protesters? So I just said, oh, what do you mean? And she explained that she thought that the police were being over the top, that anybody could see that it was too violent, that the police were out of hand. And that was interesting for me because I had automatically assumed that she would be on one side and she was totally not. There's this concept, I feel like, when bike touring and probably with a lot of kinds of travel that, like, you've been fine till now, but the next hundred miles is going to be more dangerous. The next hundred miles is where the drunks are. The next hundred miles is where the bears are. Throughout South Dakota, people warned Marianne about this one town. A lot of like, well, you've been fine till now, but wait till you get to White River. Like, that town is terrible. Like, ride on through that. Don't spend any time there. White River sits just north of the Rosebud Indian Reservation, and people warned Marianne again and again that the 500-person town and the roads around it would be crawling with drunks. She pedaled into White River in the early afternoon. When she stopped at the place that doubled as the town gas station and restaurant, she could see the afternoon thunderclouds rolling in. She decided to post up for a few hours and wait out the storm. So I'm like hanging out in their cafeteria arcade area and probably in the course of three hours, every single person in the town had seen me. Marianne watched the storm for a few hours before she decided that biking in the rain wasn't actually what she wanted to do with her evening. That she'd take her chances on White River, pitch her tent in the campground for the night and keep going the next morning. She was hanging out in the picnic shelter when a man rolled up in a white pickup and offered her a place to stay. He was like, well, I own... I own the only apartment complex in town, and we have two vacancies right now, and it's not nice, there's no furniture, but it's a warm place out of the rain, you can stay. She decided to trust the man and take him up on his offer. And abruptly, in what was rumored to be the worst town on her route, she wound up with one of the most generous offers anyone had made. By that point, I had been in so many situations where I had accepted kindness, and it hadn't bit me, you know, it hadn't turned out bad that I was definitely a lot more willing to accept kindness. And the idea that people would be trying to manipulate me in some way or take advantage of me or worst case scenario, like rape, rob and kill me. The idea that those things were going to happen was put to the back of my mind. From White River, Marianne traveled northwest to Minneapolis and across northern Wisconsin. On the upper peninsula of Michigan, she and a friend watched a spider spin a web in front of a sunset across Lake Michigan and rode a canoe out onto the lake to watch the Milky Way appear on a clear night. She visited a friend in Detroit, then crossed into Ontario. She rode the final 550 miles to her endpoint in Montreal, just as the rains of Canadian winter began. After a few days in Montreal, she returned to New York City and the comfort of her East Coast bubble. 
that racist encounter she had at the gas station in Washington. It was the only experience she had like that on the entire trip. That was a challenged expectation, that there was only one one moment of like true fear that somebody was out to harm me. The whole rest of the ride, I was like, okay, 2,000 miles in, still just that one moment. 3,000 miles in, still just that one time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> 4,000 miles in, still just that one time in Washington. And it was like, you know, by the end of the trip, it was like, okay, I had one extremely scary moment. But there was actually no action taken on that. There was actually no harm done at the end of the day. Back in New York, Marianne found another nursing job, like she had planned. And I kind of found the city intolerable in a lot of ways. I would go to work and there was one night where three of my four patients just wanted to talk to me about India, about the one movie they saw where there was an Indian person in it. Just wanted me to be like an expert on brownness, you know, as if like, a country of a billion people can be represented by a single person in New York. <laughs> and I do have a very close relationship with my ancestry. My family has gone to India every year since I was a kid. But it's frustrating when people are only talking to me about that because that's the only thing that they can see. Man, that's so funny. It's just, it almost sounds like it took you going through the middle of the country to really see that in this place that you had lived? I would say that's accurate. It definitely, it, it took going through the middle of the country and it took being alone for long periods of time to be able to recognize, like, oh, that's just not right. Like, I can be treated better. People came up to me just because they were curious, just because they were like, there aren't a lot of strangers here. We're just interested in who you are as a person, as like a whole person, versus then being in New York and being like, there are millions of people here. We don't care who you are. If you don't like us, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's almost like there's more accountability when there are less people. Yeah, you're way more accountable when somebody has to shake your hand when they meet you because, and you have to make eye contact. Within a month of being in New York, I was kind of like, I need to leave this place. So she did. Just months later, she moved to Anchorage, a big city compared to somewhere like Big Fork, Montana or White River, South Dakota but a small town to an East Coast girl living in NYC. When I came to Alaska, I remember being shocked and startled that like every person I met, every new coworker came up to me. They were like, oh, you must be new here and like shook my hand. I was startled because I think I did four travel nursing assignments in New York and not once had anybody shaken my hand. I never lived off the East Coast prior to my bike tour. And so I think... The idea that people like me could exist in the middle of the country and be safe and be cared for and be seen as legitimate human beings. And that I could meet all these people who I had misconceptions about and they ended up treating me with so much kindness. I feel like it did really challenge challenge the ideas that I had in yeah that bubble. And the mode of interacting on a bike is so different. So you require 
that people be good to you. When you require that people hold you safe, they can surprise you with how good they are. I've been waiting on a train back in my old hometown. Man, I don't really want to leave here, but I just can't see into settle down. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who have just launched an online used Patagonia clothing store. It's worth a look. There's a ton of awesome stuff on there for awesome prices. Or if you've got a piece of gear that you don't use anymore, take it into a Patagonia store. They'll give you credit to buy something else you will use, and then turn that garment over to the online store. Visit warnwear.patagonia.com to learn more. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Mountain biking season is totally upon us. Been riding for a while now. Don't settle for that janky rack that you've been using for the past decade and still hate. Visit kuatracks.com and check out their lineup of sturdy, easy-to-use, and good-looking hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support for the show also comes from our newest sponsor, Vossen Brewing, a new Virginia-based brewery crafting delicious farmhouse ales that make for the perfect end to a long day outside. Their Richmond Tap House will open its doors in the next few months. Follow them on social media or visit vossenbrewing.com to track their progress. And you guys... You also make this possible. You're the ones who keep the diaries thriving. Thank you for that. And to express our gratitude, if you donate now, you can download your very own Dirtbag Diaries theme song, Ringtone. That's right. It's pretty damn rad. Go to our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, and click the pledge button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much for all of you who have already done so. A huge thank you to Marianne for sharing her story. Marianne is now living in San Diego, hiking and trying to learn how to kite surf and planning a bike tour across India. You can find more of her writing and sign up to receive a postcard from her next adventure at postcardsfrommat.com. Music today from Jacob Bain, Cloud9, Little Glass Men, and Jason Tyler Burton. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Feet above this time.